Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Kay Drapshow and Terry Walker to the show. Dr. Kay Drapshow is an associate professor in the Biosystems Engineering Program at Clemson University in the Department of Environmental Engineering and Earth Sciences. She is the past chair of the Clemson University Sustainability Commission. Dr. Drapshow teaches courses at the undergraduate and graduate level in biological kinetics and reactor modeling, heat and mass transfer in biological systems, and sustainable engineering design. My second guest is Dr. Terry Walker, who is a professor and graduate student coordinator of biosystems engineering at Clemson University with over 20 years of experience in sustainable bioprocessing. He obtained his PhD in biosystems engineering in 1997 at the University of Tennessee in cooperation with Oak Ridge National Laboratory. He was an assistant professor at LSU before arriving at Clemson as an associate professor in 2002. Kay, Terry, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing very well, Raj. How about yourself? Kay, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. Terry? Yes, doing very well. And where are you both located? Clemson, South Carolina at Clemson University. <laughs> and we have a lot of Clemson people on our team, so I appreciate you joining us. How's the weather out there? Oh, we've had wonderful weather. Well, maybe considering climate change may be abnormal, but it's been very warm, <laughs> very warm and very nice. It's one of those funny things, right? You kind of want to celebrate it, but not so much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you joining both professors at Clemson University. Kay, can you start off by you know giving your role at the university? Sure. I am an associate professor in the biosystems engineering program, and I teach both uh, at the undergraduate and graduate level a variety of courses dealing with fundamentals of our discipline, dealing with heat and mass transfer uh, concepts, and also uh, dealing with biological kinetics, mainly the way microorganisms grow and either treat uh, and convert wastes or produce biofuel compounds um, or uh, just grow their cells for the value that that in, uh, entails. Um, and I also conduct research in those areas. So I focus on biological reactor design for biofuels, for carbon capture from the atmosphere through uh, managed algae cultures, uh, and in overall sustainable design. And Terry? Uh, yes, I'm a professor as well at Clemson uh, Biosystems Engineering Um so I've been there for about uh, 18 years or so now, um, moving from Louisiana State University originally, but uh, work primarily in the sustainable bioprocessing area, uh, very similar to what Kay had mentioned, and a big, big uh, 
emphasis on carbon drawdown is kind of a really a major, major thing for me right now. Um, also teach several courses in the sustainable bioprocessing area at both the uh, undergraduate and graduate level. Also the, um, the uh, graduate coordinator uh, uh, for, the, for the program. So Terry, you've been there 18 years. How have you seen the interest change in the biofuels and perhaps even broader renewable fuels area? Oh yeah, there's been lots of changes. Uh, when I first started there, it really was almost no interest. And then suddenly around 2005, the Energy Policy Act uh, was passed and they began to uh, fund research in the area. Um, in part, I think, to slip in the uh, fracking uh, clauses as well so they could get uh, promote natural gas. Um, and they would use the uh, renewable energy as a way to make it look good, the bill. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we suffered uh, many years of uh, EPA violations uh, through the fracking industry. But um, at least as far as the Sustainable Biofuels Initiative, uh, there was quite a bit of funding up until about 2012. Um, a, lot, a lot of that money has gone away, but... It periodically comes back again. Um, meanwhile, the biofuels industry has been forging forward. Um, and I've worked primarily in the biodiesel area, uh, but the, also the ethanol area is, is a very popular one. But the uh, in the biodiesel area, uh, even with lots of uh, uncertainty, uh, the, the companies continue to grow. So we're actually up to about 3 billion gallons per year. We're one of the largest uh, producers of biodiesel in the world now. So we're competitive with Europe. And Kay, what about in the classes that you've been teaching? How have you seen the interest among students grow? Yeah, it's been um, increasing every year, and it's been so helpful <laughs> to um, to our morale as instructors. Um, I recall one of the earlier years that I taught, uh, the whole class essentially still felt that climate change was a political hoax, if you will. They did not, uh, you know, internalize the science or understand that the science was so valid. This was 15 years ago. Um, and that was really a disappointing thing to encounter. And it made me realize we had to work even harder to educate the students that we were recruiting into our program about this you know, crisis. And so that largely has resolved itself. I would say that the student body, even across disciplines at the university now, understands the science behind climate change and the, the dire threat that it poses. Um, so that's been very encouraging. Was there a specific turning point or was it a slow change? It felt like it was a slow change, but then there would be kind of sudden, sudden changes embedded in that. And uh, Terry, who keeps up more with, with trends based on generational, um, you know, cohorts, would would say, "Oh yeah, I read this study saying that this generation is now going to be, you know, much more uh, involved in this." And so I think we've seen that. Uh, I think it's been a com combination of efforts across the university to raise awareness, but also what their um, prior education has has focused on and you know really 
um, and educated them on. So what are some of the efforts Clemson has made? Well, within our program, it's been a priority for day from day one. I know for Terry and I, um, we were able to develop a course in renewable energy that was probably the first on campus that was on sustainable renewable um, energy. And now there's a variety of disciplines teaching a version with perhaps their emphasis or their strength um, emphasized. Uh, we have a, a large uh, group of students interested in sustainability. So we really embed that in all of our courses in our discipline. And then throughout the university, a sustainability minor was uh, developed and that's been quite popular. So I think all of those efforts uh, coalesce to really improve the, the background and the awareness that the students have. So Terry, Kay mentioned that, you know, you keep track of trends. <laughs> have you seen any... <laughs> Have you seen any specific turning points or was it a slow change for you too? Uh, yeah, I would say that it was fairly slow, unfortunately. Uh, we really needed to act um, really around 2005 when, uh, or 2006 when the Inconvenient Truth came out uh, and people became aware of uh, James Hansen, Dr. James Hansen, who has been uh, adamantly trying to get uh, big changes to take place at that point and is still very active as well. Um, but there, there, the message has gotten across, particularly with the, the, the younger generations and the, the sunrise movement is a good example of that. That's uh, I give a lot of credit to the young people that have uh, been very politically active there. Um, and they're also voting. That's another really interesting thing. Um, now that the millennial millennial uh, generation is the largest generation in the history of humans. Um, they are actually voting too for really the first time that young people voted. Um, it's been fairly dismal throughout our history uh, when it comes to young people. Um, and it's very unfortunate because it's their future and, and they're the ones that are going to be leading the future. So for them not to vote or get their say in there, uh, I think is tragic. But fortunately, and really starting in 2018, I would say, they really did come out to vote for the first time. And it looks like they're doing it again. And and I think it's moving to the next generation, the, the Gen uh, Z, I guess. And then there's a Gen Alpha is coming soon. So this is an <laughs> exciting period um, to see them actually starting to take the lead. Um, because my generation has been, a, a, unfortunately, a, a major failure. <laughs> and not really uh, taking this uh, seriously. And, and, the, and the fact that we're the leaders at the moment, uh, we're generally the ones that are leading most of major government operations and also uh, major corporations to not be taking this uh, extremely serious. This is We are really in a serious climate emergency now. And uh, James Hansen made us very aware of that back in 2005, basically said that by 2020, if we haven't acted it'll be too late. So we're right here at 2020. <laughs> and now we have uh, apparently just seven years uh, really to, to, to do something. So Terry, let's speak to, you know, quote unquote, your generation for a moment. I did my MBA back in 2008. And I remember during the MBA, we read a book by a gentleman uh, by the name of Andrew Winston. And I think it was called Green to Gold and 
maybe Green Recovery, there were two books. Mm-hmm. And there was a slight mention regarding, you know, in, in the class regarding climate change and global warming. But there was a certain segment of the cohort that, you know, grew up under this um, Friedman economic style, if you will, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. Uh-huh. And so their thinking was tied very strongly to that. So, and, and, you know, there were some companies that were mentioned in the book that were, you know, taking a stand back in 2008, 2010. I think Unilever may have been one of them, but I might be misspeaking. But what do you think, um, perhaps, let's just say your generation or people that are further along in their careers can maybe tie themselves to now to be part of this change? Well, it will be critical that we are part of this change because we we don't have any time left. So it's really going to take all the generations at this point uh, working together to make this happen uh, with their different levels of power. Um, um, of course, the young generation who are going to take over uh, in the next 10 to 20 years are uh, are, are key to this to the whole thing. But um, we really only have seven years left to, to do something. Uh, I mean, at, at a rate of uh, 50 gigatons of CO2 per year of uh, emissions, uh, it's just unacceptable. And it's actually accelerating. So uh, we have to go exactly the opposite direction. Uh, we are seeing some of this uh, being talked about, obviously, through Paris Accord and finally getting the countries to agree. Um, but to actually take action is, is the next step, and the action is not happening at this point. And um, I, I think it would be very interesting this year to see what happens in our in the climate uh, um, conference that comes up. I agree. It will be interesting. Kay, to you. You know, Terry mentioned future generations and perhaps some of the things that we can engage in as our current generation. But what are some opportunities you see for students and how do you speak to your students about those opportunities? Well, I try to frame it as what we can do now where in addition to activism to change policy, um, which is extremely important in what Terry has been discussing, but also to really adopt the lifestyle changes that if we all adopted, would have a substantial difference. And many times I think students think everything's expensive. They're a student. They can't put PV panels on their dorm rooms, et cetera. So we really try to focus on the personal lifestyle changes that can have an impact and reducing your own uh, carbon and ecological footprint. And I think that is really uh, the number of online tools to do those calculations has really helped students um, think about their own uh, purchases, their food purchases, what they consume, uh, what they discard, um, how they get to and from classes, all of those really matter. And um, so I think that has been one tool that I've, uh, and I know Terry does the same, to really help students think about what they can do on an individual basis. And um, I try to practice what I preach and I brag about it when it's successful or I make a joke about it. Uh, if it's something that I think they might think is corny, like hanging your laundry outside on a clothesline, which I have the ability to do because I don't live in a um, <laughs> in a subdivision that might preclude that. But I also try to t- talk to them about like, how can we change those, those rules? You know, coal, uh, 
power plants and the pollution that is released is pretty unsightly. I don't mind seeing a neighbor's laundry on their line. I think that's a good thing. Um, so we, we talk about a variety from very small actions to large actions. But I think that helps relieve some frust- frustration also, because you can feel paralyzed by the lack of activity by institutions. And I think it's really important for students to, and everybody, to embrace what they can do on an individual uh, basis. And what about opportunities in the workforce from a career standpoint, based on the assumption that the students are coming through your classes to eventually get a job in particular sectors? How do you advise them regarding getting a job and perhaps what sectors to look at? Oh, I, I uh, started out to teach a sophomore level class. So we have professional development as one of the explicit objectives of that class. And I have a cumulative list since 2007 when I first joined. Uh, well, it started with 2007. I, I joined in 2003. But um, of our graduates and the jobs, not every single graduate, but those that chose to let me know where they had gotten employment. And I I present that to our students and say, look at these great companies that are doing work in the bioprocessing area or in the ecological engineering area. And I think that really helps kind of let them be familiar with local opportunities or nationwide job opportunities. Um, And then we really focus in one of the other sophomore classes on bringing back our alumni for invited um, talks. And I think that's really helpful. Um, One example is a student that was on one of my creative inquiry teams um, the first year that I offered it on oyster reef restoration, because it's a global issue that we've uh, over harvested our oyster reefs. And the student um, was on that team. Then she was, uh, did that project for her senior design. And now she's working in California for a consulting firm doing, guess what, <laughs> living shorelines and oyster reef restoration work. And, uh, and really, it's been so exciting to watch that uh, progression of activities and to, and to feel good about perhaps giving her that spark of interest. And Terry, before I come to you with the same question, Kay, can you share what Creative Inquiry is? That's an undergraduate research initiative that was developed under um, our prior provost, um, Dory Helms, to encourage students to be involved with discovery, uh, traditional research, field activities, um, and really pursue projects that they're interested in. So in our example, it's a pass-fail course, one credit. It's not meant to add to their burden of homeworks and exams. It's meant to just get their um, exposure, give them exposure to researchable questions and how we can um, really approach them and and to be fun, frankly, to show how interesting and engaging research can be. It sounds really interesting. And do you have a particular framework that you follow for that? No, I think the benefit of this is that there's no framework. It can really be, there's hundreds of creative inquiry classes now at Clemson and they're as different as night and day in the approach that the different uh, faculty have taken. And I think that students can kind of meander their way through and find what they're interested in. And um, it's been really a a fun um, activity. I think Terry, oh, excuse me. I was just going to say, I think Terry might've been in the first uh, inaugural class of the creative inquiry um, uh, participants. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I might lean on both of you offline so I can maybe 
figure out how I can get my kids into that creative inquiry mode. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, Terry, same question to you regarding some of the opportunities you see for your students and perhaps some of the advice you would give them. Yes, I mean, starting with that uh, creative inquiry, I was just luck- lucky to find out about that from another colleague, and he had submitted uh, a, a proposal. So I kind of submitted one with him, and we actually built a uh, our whole sustainable pilot facility there. A number of universities have done this, where they take their waste vegetable oil and convert convert this over to um, uh, to biofuel, to biodiesel. Um, and it displaces the amount of diesel fuel that comes into campus and then uh, ultimately displaces the carbon dioxide. So kind of a, a, a win-win sort of technology. And this is really a lot of our students have taken this uh, creative inquiry since and many have moved on to the industry. So uh, I have to have a shout out to Sam Wolf, uh, who works with you. Uh, she, she was one, a really great student. Um, uh, who's now clearly doing sustainable things. Uh, so that this this was really my hope uh, ultimately with the initiation of that of that program. So both of you have been involved in let's call it broadly the biofuels. But if you were to let's say pick two or three technologies that you're extremely hopeful for, let's say in the next ten years, which technologies would they be and why? And Kay, I'll start with you. Well. I have to say hydrogen gas, and that has kind of waxed and waned in terms of funding, in terms of natural, uh, national, excuse me, uh, interest in it. But it appears to be resurging with more um, interest in it. And it's a clean burning biofuel. Um, it can be produced from a variety of sustainable methods. Now, I focus in my research lab on producing it from biological fermentation because that's my love and my passion is anything microbial. Um, but it really um, can be the um, electrolysis of water, cleaving of water into hydrogen gas and oxygen has been um, also uh, focused on, again, as a storage fuel with the excess electricity from wind and solar. And so rather than storage uh, in a battery, you could store hydrogen gas. So I think that it um, has a lot of um, potential. And what we're focusing on is everything in biosystems is looking at the cycle. And so if you have waste agricultural products that are not being utilized, instead of discarding them, using the nutrients, the sugars in those uh, foodstuffs um, to be converted to biofuels is what we really um, focus on. And so we've been in South Carolina, uh, peaches are a, um, a commodity crop that has a large discard rate um, certain times of the year or just due to imperfections. And so those uh, excess peaches can be fermented by bacteria to hydrogen gas. And I just think it's, it's really exciting to see um, the novel approaches that microorganisms use. And if we just can discover those, then we can uh, mimic them in engineered systems. So I got to say hydrogen gas. <laughs> Terry? Uh, yeah, I would have to agree. Uh, I mean, solar is really uh, doing quite well. Uh, um, it does need some improvement, but in general, it's fairly cheap and uh, it's already, the technology is there. Um, 
but there is need for storage. And um, we are looking at hydrogen as a way for storage of energy um, for uh, our natural gas power plant that we're hopefully going to uh, shift away from uh, natural gas and go to either renewable natural gas and then use of hydrogen uh, as a way of storage, uh, I, I think is a really important and obviously sustainable forms of hydrogen production are, are critical for that. Um, the other uh, area I think is extremely important that is just starting to get recognition is regenerative agriculture uh, and moving away from our our factory type farming mechanisms and also the, uh, the tremendous amount of meat that people eat in this country, uh, which is really unnatural. We've never evolved to eat the amount of two or three times a day where we're eating meat. Um, there is a program that's trying to get people to just cut back to one meal per day, uh, which I think is interesting, is a good start. Um, it actually took me 48 years to uh, finally become vegan. Um, after making excuse after excuse. Uh, but as far as the sustainability footprint, um, that is one of the most egregious is, is, is our meat consumption, particularly in the beef uh, area. But being able to work uh, these systems together into a regenerative agricultural type system is really uh, absolutely a technology that has to happen since we're looking at very large amounts of our greenhouse gases that are coming from the agriculture sector uh, in the world. And that this is a, another great area for potential drawdown of carbon too. We can very quickly pull carbon out of the atmosphere through an agricultural and forestry uh, areas since they naturally uh, take carbon dioxide for their cycle. So bringing that back into a cycle, cyclic process that benefits us, I, I think, is a huge part of this solution. I appreciate you both sharing that. Kay, we're getting to the crux of our conversation, the why behind what you do. What drew you to biosystems engineering? I stumbled into it, <laughs> frankly. Creative, uh, creative inquiry? <laughs> well, uh, no, I mean, I um, was, when I was a, a child and then through high school, I... Um, was always passionate about feeding the world and saving the planet, saving the whales. You know, that was the, uh, the motto uh, a long time ago. And I think biosystems is really uh, the intersection of those because, as Terry mentioned, everything is cyclical. Everything that we eat, how we produce those foods, how we discard of the unused portion, it's, it's all integrated. So the systems part of this is what I find so fascinating. It just, it's just, uh, it's like a puzzle. How can we figure out how to use everything that is a, a byproduct of a major, you know, bio process. And, and that's just challenging. It's just interesting. Um, and to go back to the prior question, I was going to add that, um, you know, solar and wind are great sources of renewable energy, but they don't produce the, the byproducts that we actually need to produce our materials, textiles, pharmaceuticals, other compounds. So the whole biorefinery concept, where you're producing a biofuel, but yet also your materials that are now derived largely from petroleum, um, and uh, you know, a variety of compounds for industrial society, 
can be produced in a biorefinery. So that's what attracts me and keeps me in this field. It's there's always new information that's being discovered that I just uh, find fascinating. And Terry, what led you to biofuels? Um, kind of a similar story um, through the engineering area. Um, I, I struggled uh, in the first few years of whether I really wanted to become an engineer um, after I started realizing that we have that kind of power to destroy things very quickly um, through innovation. And that's a lot of what we've done. I mean, we've produced a gasoline engine and now it's become a disaster, uh, extremely inefficient uh, type of technology. Uh, luckily, I think is going to go away with electric cars coming in. Um, but even that, uh, you, you've really got to watch out because we can really accelerate the, the demise of the world. Uh, there's a lot of power in that, unfortunately. Um, so that really did start leading me towards uh, sustainable engineering. Um, it wasn't really talked about much uh, when, I, when I was going through school, which was very um, unfortunate. But it was a passion of mine. So I ended up staying in the engineering discipline to try to fight back, I guess you might say, <laughs> to help uh, to try to help these uh, uh, th- these types of uh, problems. And my, my first experience uh, was working with extraction um, of food uh, oils. Uh, so the omega-3 fatty acids, those kind of things. And they were using hexane, which is a pretty horrible solvent. Uh, they still use that actually in the industry, but uh, I wanted to get away from that. And we actually went to carbon dioxide as a way of uh, uh, sustainable extraction. So that was sort of the beginning of, of that uh, uh, in my PhD program where uh, I used supercritical fluids uh, to uh, try to get as involved into a biorefinery process as possible and, and ultimately try to think about, again, closing the loop on, on the, on the process. So, uh, you're not wasting, uh, not taking natural resources and then wasting them, but actually getting them back into a cyclic, uh, 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 function there. So we, we can either really destroy the planet very quickly, or we could potentially help, help save it. And that, that's my, that's my ultimate hope <laughs> for what I've well, done. Staying on the theme of helping, can you share what Greenlight South Carolina is and what the organization does? Uh, yes, that's a really great organization that was started by a musician, uh, Andreas Hoffman, uh, in uh, New Orleans. So the actual parent company is uh, Greenlight New Orleans. And I would highly, uh, anyone that goes to New Orleans, I would uh, uh, um, volunteer. It's, it's a volunteer type organization where you can go into uh, change out the light bulbs uh, in typically homes of poverty to try to reduce their energy bill. And he's also moves in the area of uh, making raised bed gardens. So you plant a raised bed garden at a, at a house in New Orleans um, and as well as uh, rain barrels for collecting water. So you're, you recycle your water uh, through that system as well. Uh, so it's been a huge success. Uh, so I wanted to try to model that in South Carolina. And we actually set up a, uh, a company here underneath uh, his company in New Orleans and to try to do the same thing in the Greenville area, primarily Greenville, Anderson, Clemson, 
uh, area. So we, we, we've been successful at, uh, at changing out light bulbs, those type of things. But um, I, want to, I would love to move to the next level of uh, bringing in the more ecosystems type uh, engineering in, into this. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity in that sector. I was speaking with a real estate developer last week, and she and I were discussing the opportunities to come in and retrofit homes, you know, from an efficiency standpoint to, like you said, lower the bills or the wallet share of the people that are living there and, you know, essentially make it a win-win. Yes, absolutely. And plus, it's a great social event, too. I mean, you... uh if, if that, that was one of the great things about his whole idea was to get the volunteers involved directly with the people. So it's, it wasn't something like where Duke Energy would just send a bunch of light bulbs out and hope that they install it. They actually, in this organization, they, they get the community really to come together and you sort of learn from each other. So it's really a just a fantastic organization. That's all I can say about it. I donate to it all the time and will continue to do so. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So, Kay, yes. it's 2030, Magic Wand. Yeah. What does the program look like? And what do you feel like? Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. What does the program look like? And what do you hope students are asking for? Well, I was thinking about some my fall class that I teach in biological kinetics. And um, earlier when you were asking about students' attitudes and how they have changed, one thing that we we don't just talk about, but we actually get the data and model it, is the impact of environmental toxins on human health. And we're just barraged by the number of compounds that we ingest or are exposed to through our skin or through what we breathe. And a lot of these are uh, food products. If you're not purchasing organic food, um, they're sunscreens, if you're not using the the zinc oxide safe alternatives. Uh, There's so much emerging information about these toxins and how they impact our health that I hope that our students through their own purchasing power choices and also their um, public pressure on our regulators, that we could really close that link on, you know, it's on how we can be healthier as a society by helping everybody have more safer choices. Um, The Environmental Working Group is one nonprofit that I've supported that I think does really good work in that, which is characterizing different toxins in different foods and different products. So I think the program is going to continue to evolve to really keep up with the changing um, challenges and onslaughts that we have uh, as humans in this society and that they'll, the students will continue to evolve solutions. Cause that was, I, I should have mentioned that earlier. That was the reason I was drawn to this major is that studying about the problems is great to raise awareness, but then designing the solutions is what is what is needed. And that's what um, keeps me here. And I think that's what our students also really um, are focused on. Well, rounding up for a moment, you know, you've both obviously are extremely committed, 20 years or so, each one of you. Terry, I'm going to start with you. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, and it could be personal or professional, what would it be? Um, I would just say that everyone has the power to do something about this problem. I think a lot of people feel powerless, but they, 
they actually have quite a bit of power. Uh, in fact, for everything you do, it's, you, you're in charge of it, really. I mean, ultimately, what you end up doing in your life is what you decide to do. And to become active, I think, is really the critical thing that needs to happen uh, right now. Uh, we can't wait any longer. We can't wait around for other people to try to come up with these solutions. I think every person has to be part of this solution. And they have a lot more power than they realize. That's that's the thing. I, I think that's my advice. Uh, uh, I think the other thing is to uh, – one positive thing that's happened is um, – We've had some degrowth uh, in population, and primarily this is due to the education of women around the world. And this has been a uh, – it's actually been a big benefit uh, to not using t- too many resources. Um, so uh, getting – supporting women in, in this process to be able to move forward is going to be another major aspect. Uh, and we are seeing some of this happen, uh, but I, I think that uh, my, my main thing is that we just take action and that we support uh, the people that are going to that are going to move us forward. To uh, again, we have about seven years to do something about this. We can't, we can no longer wait. We have to all become active now. And Kay, same question to you. Yeah, I think Terry has really nailed it that individual action is so crucial. So he was focusing mainly on on climate change and energy use. And I think that's really within the scope of each individual to address. Um, And I would like to expand it to also our own personal health. Be aware of what you're eating and what you're purchasing and um, and you know, especially in the time of COVID, when we know that there are a number of health comorbidities that make you more at risk for uh, severe disease, it seems like now is the perfect time to really take charge of your health. And that's going to have the impact on improving the environment too, because if you're consuming more vegetables and fruits that are organically produced, you're helping yourself but you're also um, helping the environment. So again, this individual action and the cyclical nature that everything's interconnected, I think is um, what my suggestion would be to focus on that. Well, I echo your sentiments and I'm going to end with the quote from your email, Kay. Ah. Above, Above all, we must understand that in leaving the toxic ways of the present, we are healing ourselves, our places and our planet. We rebel not as a last act of desperation, but as a first act of creation. It's Stan Smith. Yeah, that's a great quote. (laughs) Thank you both very much. And I truly look forward to catching up with you again soon and seeing where the program is. Awesome. Thank you, Raj. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.